This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. We're revisiting our series, The Political Editors, which is one of the favourite things that I did on the podcast this year. In this episode two, it's a really special chat with Julian Haviland, who joined the Times as political editor from ITN in 1981. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. For this episode, Julian Haviland on making the journey from political editor of ITN to The Times, his memories of Thatcher, Wilson, Alec Douglas Hume and a remarkable story about the Queen he never got to publish. The Queen was watching this on telly and when the horses went in and rode through some of the miners and not through the island. The Queen said words to them, oh, that's awful. She took an extremely large scotch. Her husband, Dennis, was the one who said a drink like the drain. But Margaret had quite a capacity. Now, this is a particularly special episode of The Political Editors because Julian Haviland died earlier this month, exactly a month after our interview. His career spanned a remarkable period of British history and he was known for his exacting journalistic standards, his persistence and impartiality, but also for his affable and courteous manner, as you'll hear during the course of our interview. He started out in journalism at the Surrey Advertiser before moving to South Africa and reporting for the Johannesburg Star. Returning to London, he began his television career at ITN, first as a reporter, and then eventually, in 1975, he became ITN's political editor. 
he met every Prime Minister from Alec Douglas Hume onwards. But let's start with his thoughts on Harold Wilson, who first led Labour to a narrow election victory in 1964. Harold Wilson was a lovely man. Tories thought he was damn clever and nasty. We've got a job to do. We can only do that job as one people. And I'm going right in to start that job now. The truth is the opposite. He, he, he often made quite serious mistakes. As a human being, he's very warm and pleasant. And he once lent his house in the series to Ray Gunter, who'd been one of the Transport Union representatives. And Ray disappeared. He had cancer. They spent several weeks. We now see what happened to him. One day, Dave was back in the lobbies and uh, spitting blood, almost literally. I said, Ray, what's up with you? Said, do, you know what's do you know what that little sentence has done to me? That little sentence says Wilson, who we hated, and he said, I said, no, of course I didn't. Well, he's lent me his cottage in the cities uh, to, to get better. And he's made a remarkable difference to my recover. But and Ray was very upset because Wilson has shot his own fox, as it were, and so he could no longer go around saying what a swine the man was. And he came back to me after a few seconds and said, by the way, the little so-and-so says, I mustn't tell anybody, so keep it to yourself. <laughs> so I thought Wilson came rather well after that. I, I didn't think he was all that good a prime minister. He had his flaws. But as a human being, he could be quite delightful, and he was generous. I think not being Alec Hume helped, <laughs> because he seemed more like an ordinary bloke but he's quite clever at getting headlines, too, and he had a good staff around him who helped him. There was Julian Haviland's view of Howard Wilson, seemingly a decent and warm man who made some poor political decisions. Well, it was certainly a far more favourable impression than that made by Ted Heath, who defeated Wilson to enter Downing Street in 1970. He was as doer as everybody would think. I never discuss personal matters, actually, with, with my colleagues. I never have done. He didn't often crack a joke. At least we did. It wasn't particularly funny. And he was not easily accessible to any except a few lobby correspondents. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't think I can characterize him. He was a dull man, essentially. He did terribly well in life and in politics. But he had very few friends. Well, sadly, he was lonely. He was a bit solitary. Julian Hammond's view of the solitary Ted Heath. Well, Julian also had a tricky relationship with James Callaghan. Before entering number 10, Callaghan was Howard Wilson's Chancellor, but he resigned after being forced to devalue the pound. Wilson immediately brought him back as Home Secretary. Speaking for myself, I think there's a lot to be said for the pound. Every one of us in Britain's familiar with it. We know what it stands for. Abroad, they know what it stands for. And it's as good a system as any other system you could find. So the pound and the penny, two old coins and units, they hold the day. And I didn't much get on. It didn't matter. Things got better after a bit. But when he had to resign at the time of the devaluation, 
as uh, chancellor and became home secretary, he came to the ITN studios and he was so smug about it. He said, well, it was my duty to resign because I was chancellor after all and I thought it was time that um, someone took my place. And he, he was so smug, I couldn't help saying, well, you didn't do so badly, did you? Because you jumped out of the treasury and you're now home secretary. And it came out ruder than I normally like to be. And he would have struck me uh, <laughs> if we hadn't been live on. <laughs> so we never great friends. But I did admire him. Uh, Julian Hamlin recalling uh, Jim Callaghan's decision to resign as Chancellor and explain the two didn't go on to the, uh, so, well, to the point that he, he thought that Jim Callaghan uh, might have punched him. Well, Julian Hamlin was known well to the nation as ITN's political editor and trusted by politicians of all parties. He impressed uh, by, impressed by his reputation at Westminster, the editor of the Times, Harold Evans, persuaded him to make the unusual move from broadcast to print journalism in 1981 to become the political editor of the Times. Julian describes what happened in his typically crisp and succinct style. I'd done quite a lot of time with uh, ITN. I was enjoying myself. I got a call out of the blue from Harry Evans, the Times editor then, whom I'd always greatly admired. And you don't turn down the offer of editorship at the Times or political editorship. So I didn't. <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't turn down the offer of a job as political editor of the Times. And Julian threw himself into reporting on the, the difficult early days of the Thatcher government, regularly taking calls from senior ministers without having to ring them himself. But he didn't find the move into print, print journalism entirely straightforward. He was used to summing up stories in a few hundred words for a TV broadcast and now had to write stories could be, that could be longer than a thousand words. The lead column at the time, you had the lead with two columns, perhaps 1,500 words. And the lead story on television would be five, 600 words if you were lucky. The great thing is they couldn't cut you off on telly. Once you promised to go from 500 words or no more, you were free to go and go and go and drive everyone nuts. But on time, this was the best of all sub-editor, still is, I'm sure, who had the last word. When I went to the Times, Ian Aitken, who I mentioned, was lovely, and I said, I'm not going to know how to film poem. He says, it did easy, do Never use one word where 17 will do. <laughs> Uh, it was a good rule, so I used to do 17 words in one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the sub-editors loved you. Um, which do you prefer? Did you prefer working in TV or in print? TV was easier because uh, you were always... Deadlines weren't so pressing. I was shocked by how soon, if you were going to make the front page, you had to have your copy in on the Times, whereas... Without you, with the main news tennis it always was, you could walk in uh, at the last moment and spout. And as I say, never could stop. And so it was easier. And you you thought the poor newspaper people are going to have to catch up because the events I'm describing, they'd have had to write about at 7 o'clock in Hermai with an update at 2 minutes to 10. So tell it was much easier. Julian, they're summing up the differences between broadcast and print journalism. 
Although I have to say, I, I don't think I've ever been told at the Times <laughs> never use one word when 17 will do. They'll definitely uh, cut that out. You're listening to episode two of The Political Editors with Julian Havlid. In a moment, we'll hear about his first interview with Margaret Thatcher after joining the paper and a remarkable story that hasn't been heard before about the late Queen's reactions, the Battle of Orgreave, a story that at the time he wasn't able to publish. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Let's return then to my interview with Julian Haviland, who was the political of the Times from 1981 to 1986. Now, Julian spent the bulk of his career at Westminster from the 1960s until his retirement in the 1980s. I asked him which politicians he remembered as the most powerful speakers in the Commons. I remember the ones who were genuinely eloquent, and so they had the potential of changing the other side's mind. Tony Benn was a very remarkable speaker. We've tried to make capitalism work with good and humane Labour governments and we haven't succeeded because it can't work, because it rests on injustice. Ron Walden later became a television presenter. Those three stand... Oh, I had the most eloquent of all, a man called John P. McIntosh, who was Labour MP the marginal seat of Eric and was, didn't last long because it was a very marginal seat. But he could hold any audience in his hand. And they're not people who made high office, but they're very, very competent speakers and uh, and good good people. I remember them. I mean, the press gallery upstairs was empty if the name Ben came up on the enunciate, as we then called it, and could have more, more subtle on their internal television. And everyone rushed down to show him, but he heard these people speaking. There weren't many of those. We need to just know the names Tony Benn, Brian Ward and John P. McIntosh were the MPs that would send journalists uh, scurrying to the gallery to listen to them. Well, some of his favourite politicians, like any journalist, were the talkative ones. But sometimes they told him things he was unable to publish. This is Julian describing what happened when Cecil Parkinson, Margaret Thatcher's trade and industry secretary, told him a story during the Falklands War, which Julian worried would put lives at risk. I like the blabby ones because they're so useful. And I sort out the discreet politicians. Sometimes they sort me out. Um, 
because they were kind of people who liked getting publicity. A very good example was Cecil Parkinson. At the time of the Falklands War, Margaret Thatcher had an inner cabinet, as you expect, of Foreign Secretary, Defence Secretary, Chiefs of Staff, and Cecil Parkinson, who was relatively inexperienced, his Secretary said for industry, I think, and um, she added him too. He knew nothing about warfare or anything. She just she liked him. She thought he was a handsome fellow, which I dare say he was. And there came a time when I encountered him in the lobby, and she always wanted to talk to me, had something to say. And at the meeting that morning of the war cabin, they had discussed, they'd heard that one of the farmers in East Falkland had rigged up a skyway aerial by linking his um, transmitter to the top fence of his paddock and sending back top-class information to the government about um, where the arches were, how many, what strength they were in, and said, all that was a good story, as it was. And we were all, this is a time when the fleet, you may not remember this, Matt, they were in the South Atlantic on their way to Falklands, but none of us knew where they were or when or where they'd land. We saw under pressure from editors like my then editor, Charlie Jones, who, to write a story about this. And you had nothing to say. You knew nothing about him. And Cecil told me this story. I thought, well, not last, I got a story. It was an hour before deadline. So I raced upstairs to the lobby room, uh, uh, Times lobby room, and before I got there, I suddenly realized I couldn't print it. Because the arches would certainly spotted the man and he'd be dead with a week short. So I ran down where Cecil had already found someone else, Jim Whiteman, dead telegraph. And I broke the rule, which is that you, if we see a journalist talking in the lobby, you don't interrupt the conversation. If something confidential may be passing. And I collared them both and said, Look, Cecil, if you were just telling Jim, that's fixed. Well, what you told me 10 minutes ago, you mustn't tell him. And Jim looked puzzled. But then soon the penny dropped with Jim. It never did drop with Cecil. <laughs> I said, if we print this story, we're sentencing this man to death. It's a good story. It's a pity to let it go, but we have to drop it. You know, people always said you. A journalist will stop at nothing, totally unprincipled, and will get any story out. This was an account, I think, of the fact that journalists aren't totally indiscreet. It was ministers being indiscreet, and we were being rather good. Amazing story from Julian Howard explaining that when he was the political editor of the Times, he didn't publish a story about a farmer in the Falklands transmitting information on the location of the Argentine fleet for fear it would put the farmer's life in danger. He had to try and stop the blabby, in his words, Cabinet Minister Cecil Parkinson from briefing other journalists on it. Well, senior journalists were always keen to speak to him as the political editor of ITN because they felt it allowed them to reach ordinary men and women. Margaret Thatcher was no different. Here is Julian interviewing her on the television in July 1980. Prime Minister, I think people would expect me to ask you about unemployment. May I ask you first how much higher you think it'll go? 
I don't know. I've never been a politician who forecast unemployment. I do fear it will go higher next month, and I fear it will stay high for quite a time, as it did on the last occasion when we had a sudden increase in unemployment. But I can't give you a maximum figure. Well, a year later, uh, Julian left uh, ITN to join The Times as political editor, and he found he had to wait a little longer for an interview with the Prime Minister. Here's what happened. And the time came when I last got an interview with her. I was told the Prime Minister would see me now, rather graciously. So I went along, saw her, and uh, we and I hadn't seen her for a year, so we covered lo- all the bases. And after she'd finished, she took an extremely large scotch. Her husband, Dennis, was the one who said a drink like a drain. But Margaret had quite a capacity. So when I got back, Charlie Doug assumed that the editor, who was interested, said, how did it go? And I think I must have shaken a little bit, I said, with the forcefulness of my questions, because after I finished, she had a very large whiskey indeed, and before I get my lips to mine, she was halfway through a second Meadows whiskey, so I must have made an impression. Charlie said, you were fooled, John. You've forgotten what day it is, haven't you? And it was Tuesday evening at five o'clock or what. And her next engagement was a weekly audience for the Queen at six o'clock. And the one person in the world of whom Margaret Thatcher was frightened was the Queen. And that's why she downed a lot of whiskey. And I thought myself that she was nervous about me. Not a bit of it. The Queen takes an intense interest in every aspect of life in our country, and she brings to bear a formidable grasp of current issues and a tremendous breadth of experience. Her guidance and advice are always most acute, and as Prime Minister, I was privileged to benefit from both enormously. Amazing. It wasn't nerves after all about it being interviewed by Julian that led Margaret Thatcher to have a couple of stiff drinks, but the prospect of her weekly audience with the Queen. And probably the most remarkable story that Julian told me also involves the late Queen. It goes back to 1984, when the Battle of Orgreave saw a violent confrontation between striking miners in South Yorkshire and thousands of police officers from around the country. During the miners' strike... You remember the occasional real flashpoints, and there was a famous event at Orgreave Coking Depot near Rotherham. Thatcher was determined to break the strike, and they got in as many as 8,000 pickets collected by Arthur Scargill to stop the lawyers going in and out of the depot with the coke. And 5,000 policemen from all over the country and a goodly number of mounted police who had nothing to do with Rotherham or, or Austin, as it were. And um, the Queen was watching this on telly. And when the horses went in and rode through some of the miners and knocked through down, the Queen said words to them, Oh, that's awful. Oh, it. But she didn't do that. And the Queen, at the height of the vexed strike, she didn't make a political comment like that, was news. And Charlie Douglas, who 
my editor then, who had the most astonishing contacts, being related to the heir to the throne and being, and being a Douglas Hume, told me one afternoon that he'd heard that the Queen at the dinner party the previous night had said this. Julian said, it's a good story, isn't it? I said, yes. You will stand it up for me and write it by six. And I said, I think you will know the facts. You should write it yourself as a special correspondent or something. No, I can't do that. I said, you do it. I said, well, I'll do the rest. May not be that easy. And the rest of the day I spent trying to find out and it turned out there were only two other people in the room when she said it. She had said it, and I felt absolutely firm. So I went back to Charlie. One was um, the Queen's private secretary, Robert Fellows, and the other was George Younger, secretary from Scotland, who I knew to be a friend of Charlie anyway. And anyway, I threw the story up beyond doubt. And I went back to Charlie and said, you perhaps ought to know before we go any further with this. So only two people heard that. Okay, he said, we'll drop it. I spent six hours sweating. I felt terribly pleased to sweat it up. It wasn't used. It's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Julian Havland telling about the story he couldn't publish. The Queen expressing a disapproval, uh, disapproval of the police action at Orgreave at the height of the miners' strike. But because there were only two people at the dinner, one of them a cabinet minister, one of them a private secretary to uh, the Queen, if the story had been published, uh, it would have been obvious who it had come from. Well, Julian retired from daily journalism in 1986. I just left because I had enough. I'd done, I'd been around Westminster for 20 years and I thought life must have something more to offer. And so it was. And he really did. He and his family loved Scotland where they lived and he went on to produce two books and as recently as last year wrote again for the Times Red Box. Sadly, Julian Haviland died on August the 11th this year, not long after we recorded this interview at the age of 93. It was a real privilege to be able to hear his reflections on being the political editor of ITN and The Times, and we felt very grateful that his family gave permission for us to, to air the interview, and I'm pleased to be able to bring them to you again. Coming up in the third episode of The Political Editors, we'll hear from Sir Peter Riddle, who in the late 80s and early 90s oversaw the dramatic decline of Margaret Thatcher and the period of underestimating John Major. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.